And all this does is up the stakes of the game. I mean, the only person this is a game to is you, man. This is real. This was never about money for us. It was about us against the system. That system that kills the human spirit. You guys really are cowboys. What's your problem, Kazansky? You're everyone's problem. That's because every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. I am dangerous. I feel the need. The need for speed. Unless I spend too much time with my youngest daughter, Michaela, somehow she convinces me to hang over the edge of the CN Tower or scamper between moving beams on this tree track or submerge myself in a cage as sharks swim around us. But they weren't life-threatening. They weren't thrill-seeking adventures like scaling a mountain without a rope or jumping off a cliff in a squirrel suit. I'm not wired that way. Some are. Some live for extreme sports. The element of fear, the rushes, the inhale, the sense of, am I pushing my boundaries? Am I going to get through this? My guest today is married to a thrill seeker. Her husband, willing to risk everything for the rush of a potential reward. And you might be thinking, so what? It's his life. It's his decision. But think for a minute about who he leaves behind when he takes off on this sort of, uh, I can do anything. His wife, his children, his extended family. What are the consequences of his decision? The anxiety, the mental anguish, wondering if this adventure will be his last. And what happens when the potential of risk and injury becomes a reality? When you get a phone call one night and you hear that your husband, the person you love, parent of your children, is on a teeter-totter between life and death. Well, let's find out. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Danielle Kaplan. She's a speech-language pathologist and movement specialist. She grew up in Joburg, South Africa, and married a thrill-seeker, and one that almost cost him his life. Danielle, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. What a wonderful opportunity to be with you today and to share my life and story with you. So when your publicist pitched me your story, I was absolutely caught up in your pain and the anxiety you felt. I mean, uh, someone I love, do I get in the way of the things they love to do? Uh, uh, who's more important in their life? And we're going to get to his near-death accident. But first, I just want to know a little bit more about you. My wife came from South Africa. She describes her time in Canada in winters. She's been here, I think, 37 winters. So take us back to your time in South Africa and how Danielle Kaplan became a speech pathologist and this crusader of helping people just go through life in a normal way. So first of all, I'm, I'm glad you're familiar with our culture and the terminology and the vocabulary we use um, as a South African. So growing up in South Africa was complicated. I grew up um, with a very loving family, very close family, my mom, my dad, my brother. We lived an extremely privileged life. We lived in a very quiet, lovely, safe neighborhood. And unfortunately, this was during the time of living during apartheid. Um, my parents were such interesting people. They were what I would call soft activists. They belonged early on to the Socialist Party and then became the Progressive Federal Party, which was the opposition party. And so very early on in our lives, my parents instilled in myself and my brother what was ethically right, what was morally right, what was legally right. 
even though we weren't necessarily living in that environment. My parents were true humanitarians and they instilled that in us too. Um, so as young children, even though we were afforded all opportunities of education and roof over our head and food over on our table and swimming pools and everything else, um, they certainly showed us what the outrage of apartheid was. And so we went on protests, we went on rallies, and they actually took us into townships and let us understand what living in poverty was. So I grew up in this very comfortable home, but certainly with a really good understanding of what was happening in South Africa. How did that make you feel as a child? There must be some element of guilt because you come back from the townships and into this, as you call this, home of privilege. There's no doubt that you have people working within that home. How did you compartmentalize that as a child? Because that's a lot of emotions to be happening. Like, do I deserve this? Am I an imposter? Am I, is this the right thing to be doing? You carry with you this burden of guilt and you don't even realize you're carrying it with you until you actually are out of it. And I know we'll get to that in a moment, but when I left South Africa, I almost felt such huge relief that I personally didn't have to face looking at these circumstances every single day. Both Stephen and I did. I couldn't even face when I'd left South Africa, any movies on South Africa or anything that depicted the changes. And of course, when Nelson Mandela became the prime minister, we could not be more hopeful and more grateful that someone overcame the worst possible adversity. But as we know, the story doesn't unfold as beautifully as one would have hoped. So I'm interested in your, when you said speech pathologist, because I remember watching the King's speech with Colin Firth playing the future King George VI. And he sees Lionel Logue, who's this sort of boorish therapist played by Jeffrey Rush. And, but what I loved about it was the bond between the two. <laughs> I have to imagine that your work as a speech pathologist, when you do get breakthroughs and people start, you know, their shoulders get straight and their eyes shine because they feel confident in their ability to speak. It must be one of the most rewarding jobs out there. You know, going back to the movie, I loved that movie too. And obviously I had a personal attachment to it. And I think it depicted the therapist patient-client relationship at its best. You know, I feel that as a therapist, if you feel passionate about what you're doing and then you have good knowledge, that is the key. And just in that case with the movie, because that dealt with stuttering, stuttering can affect one's self-esteem, you create anxiety, you avoid communication. And if the therapist, in teaching the tools and strategies that they know, that's vital but I think what's even more valuable is actually the therapeutic relationship and the bond created. And I always felt that if it's built on mutual respect, commitment, hard work together, um, and you provide a safe place for your patient client, and the term now I think more is client, we used to use patient, then you develop that bond. And then you for sure celebrate together those small wins the big gains. And I definitely had many of those experiences over the years and ones that you never forget. You introduced Steve earlier, who is going to be your future husband. But take me back to your second year university. My research suggests you've just come off a pretty long-term relationship. And this guy, Steve, 
kind of calls you out of the blue. And this was the day before app. So he actually has to pick up the phone and call you. But you turned him down the first time. Even though when I was younger at high school, I was more into boys and sport and friends and not as serious about my studies. When I got to university and I realized the value of what I was doing and what I could develop these skills and make a difference in the world, I became super serious about my studies. So here I was about to write an exam and this boy phones me and asks me out and I go, you know, sorry, I'm writing an exam. I'm studying. I'm super focused. I've just come out of a relationship. I'm just not ready to date at the moment, you know, but I made inquiries about Stephen, even though I, I sort of said, no, I'm not going out with you. And I was told, oh, no, 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 he's definitely not your type. He's too cocky, he's too mischievous, he's too wild for you. You're just so moderate, don't go there. That research suddenly sparks that the next time he calls, for some reason you go against everybody's advice and says, well, I'm curious what happened there that you decided that maybe it's no such thing as too mischievous for you or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he calls me a couple of weeks later and now I've done my homework and he says to me, and I think this is what did it, he said, you know, I think I'm going to give you a second chance. <laughs> I went, whoa, are you cocky? Like, wow. And I guess I threw caution to the wind and said, you know what? I'm up for this challenge. And I said, yes. And that changed my life. It, it certainly did because the time you introduce him to your parents, I understand he shows up on a motorcycle and they're going, what, what is this all about? Exactly. So, my parents, although they were very progressive thinking and very liberal thinking, and our house was always full of people and friends, we had certain rules. And one of the rules was you never, ever go on a motorbike. And there he arrives in his bike gear with his little scrambler motorbike parked outside the front door. And my parents freaked and they went, no ways, Jose, for him or the bike. If I was a psychologist, I'd say one of the secrets to winning you over is to say no. And you somehow go, I've got to turn that into a yes. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Danielle Kaplan. From day one, she wondered if the person she met and would eventually marry was the right fit for her. She was cautious and pragmatic. He was a thrill seeker. So this wild and cocky boy uh, who wins your heart, earns the disapproval of your parents, somehow or other you end up coming to Canada with him. How did that come about? He actually turned out to, he, he sold his motorbike because he knew that my parents wouldn't allow us to date. So he, he was a big thing for him. He sold his bike and he totally supported me through my university. I went back to do a postgraduate research master's and he was there all the way helping me create databases and everything. This is before we had all the technology today. So he was amazing and he proved himself and we got married. Uh, we kind of proposed to each other. It was no fancy thing. We both just said, okay, it's time. Let's get married. Coming to Canada was an easy decision for us because living in South Africa was politically unstable and we knew that our futures were unstable. So we knew we, we needed to leave. We both had our degrees. Steve had studied business and then accountancy, and he had this profession, and I was professional, and we both knew we could work in other countries. But choosing Canada was easy. First of all, it was a peaceful nation. Second of all, it 
was very central in the world. A lot of our friends went other places, but we thought this was a central country to live in. You could access it and go from any place easily. Um, universal healthcare really appealed to us, and little did we know how much we needed that. Um, the social structure of the country, the um, educational system, and of course, we love the cold and the snow. What can I say? <laughs> That's where my uh, wife and you would be very different because I think the second it gets to 10 degrees, she considers this a harsh winter. I've always said, coming from South Africa, when you have the freedoms you do in a country like Canada, the weather is irrelevant. That's a great lesson in life for uh, for everybody. So uh, Steve sells his motorcycle to uh, get to continue to have permission to stay and date you. But when he gets to Canada, his appetite for extreme adventure. Talk to me about when did that start surfacing in terms of conversations and how you felt. So initially, you know, he was, he's always been someone who's extreme and like challenges. He was an ultramarathon runner. He had this dirt bike. But then initially when we came to Canada, you know, life is difficult starting a new country. We had to focus on careers, home, establishing ourselves, and then children. So in the early days of us being here, I think he must have suppressed this desire of his because everything else took precedence. But as the kids got older and we were more established in our lives, it resurfaced. And just one day spontaneously he comes home and he says, Dan's, which is what he calls me, I bought myself this amazing BMW Enduro motorbike. And I honestly, I, I, my jaw dropped. I'm like, what? Are you insane? And he said, yep, it's time for me to get out there and explore the world as I want to. That must have been a tough conversation. Not only is he bringing home a motorcycle, but the fact that he decides and uses the word I, it's time I want to explore these adventures. That must be tough for you because that's that goes from we to I pretty quickly. It's got to be a statement about who's the most important thing in this relationship. You know, that's such a good point because, in fact, he is that kind of person. He probably is the most generous person in the world, but he does definitely do what he likes to do. And there's no stopping him. And he had, you know, Steve is not someone who looks up to people, but he had a couple of icons in the world, one of them being Lance Armstrong, because Steve was a cyclist too. But the other one was Charlie Berman and Ewan McGregor. And Ewan McGregor and Charlie Berman rode these motorbikes, the same one that Steve had, from the Sahara down to Africa, through Europe, South America, all over. And Steve like relish these books and stories. And I think it motivated him. He wanted to do what they did. What happens? I mean, you can use the word, you know, he's very generous and I'll accept that attribute, but you didn't use the other word, which is extremely selfish. <laughs> and that to me is what I'm going to try to get out of the show, because there is a wake that when you leave on these adventures and you're trying to satisfy who you are and you want to be this swashbuckling solo motorcyclist that goes all over, the second you pull out of the driveway, it's got to create a level of anxiety with you. It must manifest itself even within the entire family because dad is out somewhere we're not quite sure where, and it's not a perfectly paved speedway. Absolutely. So yes, 100%. It is selfish behavior without a doubt. And this was one aspect to Steve. He was going to pursue, and that's being a thrill seeker and a sensation seeker, he was going to pursue these intense 
challenges, despite all the warnings from all of his family, not only my, well, me, my children were young and they kind of accepted their extreme dad, but his siblings, his siblings were so against this. My parents were against it, but none of that stopped him. He is a sensation seeker. He's an extreme athlete and he needs to pursue these challenges. He thrives on it. And nothing you say would have stopped him. It's interesting. And I, again, I'm not trying to be an armchair psychologist, but both of you seem to be motivated by other people saying no and don't do it. In this case, he's got his, his family, his siblings and saying, you're, you know, you're crazy. And that's so it like, how, what position are you in? If you go, if I'm going to stand in the way and even put our marriages at risk or to stop you doing it and knowing that he'll spend his life regretting that decision or letting him go, knowing you're going to regret not stopping him. How do you ever balance that as somebody left in the wake of, a, of an extreme athlete or adventure seeker? It created terrible anxiety in me, his trips, because I had worked in acute care hospitals in neurosurgery, spinal trauma, and I have seen the consequences of risk of extreme sports, and I knew exactly what danger he was putting himself in. So it created terrible anxiety for me um, during the trips because every single day I would worry about his safety. And uh, in fact, we actually went for therapy. We went to a psychologist. So I like that you're an armchair therapist sitting there. We went to a psychologist um, because I... I said, I can't deal with this extreme anxiety that I feel every time you do a trip. And his trips were extreme, every single one of them. And I feel that Steve has no understanding of how I actually feel. Um, he had no empathy to my situation. And he felt that I wasn't fully supporting him or validating these, these amazing accomplishments of his. We never did agree in the therapy and it probably uh, was foolish that we continued for me to be anxious and uh, worried and for him to carry on with his trips. So I want to now move to the summer of 2011. He convinces you he's going to just do one more. This is my last motorcycle trip. It's a small one, uh, a solo motorcycle trip from Toronto to the Yukon. Did you believe him, first of all, that this was going to be his last one? You know, his pot of gold was Alaska. And this was his second trip to Alaska. And I realized that every trip motivated the next trip. So the answer is no. Even though he would say, you know what, I think this is it. This is an amazing trip. But he would come back so inspired and so um, overwhelmed by what he had seen that no, this would not have been the last trip. Were you ever jealous of the way his heart beat and his eyes shined when he talked about his trips versus how he met a doctor looked at you? So I always called his motorbike his other wife. So that was my com competition. I, I thought about this. He never weighed up the impact of the bike versus me and his family. He never just, he never saw it in that way. He saw that he deserved to go. This was the way he played. He worked really hard. And therefore, he played hard and he deserved to go on these trips. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I never wanted to confront him because I was probably afraid of what the response might be. Do you think 
if it come down to it's either me or the chips, do you ever think back what that decision would have been? Oh, that is a tough one. I don't know. I have to believe that he would have chosen me, but I don't know for sure. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. We return. Steve heads out on a solo motorcycle trip. He promises to be his last, and it was almost his last because he has a horrific accident. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royaltrust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. Because there are four different components to sensation seeking. The first one you're probably really familiar with, which is thrill and adventure seeking. These are people who are drawn to these dangerous activities. The danger is the secret of the sauce in these kinds of things. They could be roller coasters or driving fast in cars or even diving for these squirrel suits out of planes. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Daniel Kaplan. She's written a book called I Married a Thrill Seeker, and she almost loses her husband in a motorcycle accident on a deserted Alaskan highway. Daniel, your husband Steve sets off to Toronto to Yukon solo motorcycle trip. That's not all highway. It's, it's off the beaten path. What was the last thing you said to each other before you headed out? Interestingly, I had never said anything before on his trips. I think I'd always internalized it. And somehow this trip... He was looking strong and healthy on his bike on our driveway, about to embark on this amazing three-week adventure. And I looked at him and I pointed my finger. I said, Steve, if you have a frigging accident, if you have a spinal injury, head injury, or you die on this trip, I'm going to kill you first. (laughs) I said, if you think you're going to leave me, the children, our house, our cottage, our life for me to manage by myself. You are so wrong. And he looked at me and he laughed. And this is what he said. He said, Dance, I can't believe you sending me off with such a terrible message. He said, I promise you I'm going to be fine. And it's just maybe a South African saying, he said, I will be back in one piece. I promise you, you'll see me soon. And he laughed. And that saying was ironic because, and I'm going to put it in here, when many events led to him being found by the RCMP on this very rural uninhabited road. And he was on a, the RCMP officer was on a satellite phone and you could barely hear because there was no reception in that area. And he, he put the phone to Steve's ear mouth and this tiny little broken voice said to me, Dan's, I promise you I'm coming home in one piece. Oh man, that must have been just terrific. So the audience understands this accident occurred on a remote road in the Yukon. And what happened? The accident, he was lucid. It's only afterwards that everything deteriorated. So what actually happened is he's riding his motorbike. He made a bad decision. It's dusk. It's raining and he chooses to go on this rural gravel road versus the paved highway because by doing it this way, he's in with the bears, the mountains, the terrain. It's exciting. 
and there are lots of potholes because it's a, a rural road. And he hits a pothole thinking there was it wasn't as shallow, but it had been filled with water. And then the bike comes to like this acceleration, deceleration. He gets thrown up in the air, lands on the gravel road on his side. He breaks his spine and he damages his heart. But because of his gear and his helmet, his head is fine. So he's immobile on this gravel road. The bike with this acceleration flies up in the air and lands about 60 feet away from him in the bush and he can't see the bike. The bike hits the ground and the belongings on the bike, some stay on the bike, some scatter around and a few things land on the road around him. So now he's immobile on a road which is totally uninhabited, no cars or I wouldn't even say cars, trucks people for hours. It's dusk so the animals are out. And he can hear the animals rustling in the bushes. And this is grizzly bear territory. So you know that your odds of making the night are slim. The craziest thing and probably what prompted the story to be so sensational is when you go out on adventures, you should take some kind of emergency GPA system that can connect you to some responder. So if you're in danger. In other rides, he'd actually had it on his body on a backpack, a backpack. But this time, for some reason, he'd attached this spot, which is a GPS satellite responder, to his motorbike. And this had three functions. It had the function that people could follow, his crazy adventurous friends could follow his trip on his website because it had, it mapped the trip. It sent me his coordinates every night. And with a with an automated message, Dan's I'm safe, all is good. And the third and most important thing, it had a button that was connected to an emergency center. And the one that system he had picked was in Texas. So if you're in trouble, you hit the button and it notifies this emergency center. However, the bike is now 60 feet out of sight from him. He's immobile on the road. He's broken his spine. He cannot move. Bracket breaks on impact. And this orange box... The satellite box flies up in the air and as if Steve is the target, lands in his reach. Now, what are the odds of that? That's like winning the lottery of life. If you think about it, it could have stayed on the bike. It could have slipped anywhere around 360 degrees, anywhere, any distance, any place. But lands in his reach. And without him actually even thinking about how miraculous this is, he presses the button and then he presses it again. And he told us, because this is when he was lucid, he didn't think he was so remote. He didn't even think it would work. That's incredible. He pushes this button. Is that how people found him? Yeah. So if that hadn't landed on him or within his reach, there's no way anybody well, would Well, there's another miracle in the story is that we have this amazing hero called Frank, who's a truck driver who wrote, drove his trucks since he was 15 on all these roads carrying goods. And Frank was on his way back home to Pharaoh, which is kind of the direction Steve was going on this Campbell Highway. But Frank never deviated from his route. He would do his whatever and go straight home. And by chance that day, he came across a friend of his in Watson Lake and his friend said, stay for lunch. And he did, which is so completely contrary to what Frank would normally do. So what happened is if Frank hadn't stayed for lunch, they would have passed each other 
on the highway much earlier on, Steve traveling and Frank traveling. And that was the only vehicle that he'd seen on the road that day, would have seen that day. But it so happens that Frank gets delayed and he's driving on this Campbell Highway much later than he should have been. And he sees this immobile individual on the road. What happens next? So the fact that the transponder that Steve actually hit the button, they received the message in Texas and then they phone the numbers that are given to them as contacts. They tried Steve's number. Obviously, he didn't have his phone on him. It was somewhere scattered. So they phoned me and I'm up at our cottage. And you know, when you get that call, the one that you wish you could rewrite the story, the one you wish you never heard, your heart just sinks. And so in just talking with the Texas staff picking up the the messages, we decide to dispatch the RCMP and an ambulance. And they said to me, which was eerie and shattering, your husband is so remote, it's going to take us hours to find him. What do you do in that situation? Is you're with your parents? Is that comforting? You just want to run away and be by yourself? I mean, yeah, and we didn't know at the other end. We we didn't know if he was alive because I'd actually asked the um, responders. I said, "Are the court?" Because now I'd learned the system. Are the coordinates moving? And they said, "No, it's been stationary for at least twenty minutes." So then I knew he was down, and something was up. Was he alive? How did how did the button go? I'm fortunate that I cope very well in crisis. I go into automatic pilot, which is how I lived for many months, and I go into problem solving. I just cope. And so my parents were amazing. They obviously realized something was going on. And we pack up the cottage and we drive home. We're in two cars and driving on back roads so there are no lights. It's late at night. And then I think, oh, my God, my children are up. They were working, they'd been going for years to a camp um, in Perry Sound as kids for the summer, and now they were on staff. And I'm going, my kids are up in Perry Sound at Camp Manitou. They are teenagers. My parents and I are in Toronto, aiming for Toronto, and Steve is in remote Yukon. My whole family split up. What are we going to do? But those responders were amazing. They kept giving us feedback along the way, and then they told us the RCMP found him in a truck. So Frank, and this is an incredible thing. You think about this, Frank has a rig. And so to get someone in a rig who is a spinal injury, Steve said to him at the roadside, so this is all, we had this info because Steve was still lucid. He said to Frank, leave me here and go get help because I have an injury and we don't know if we're going to make it worse. And Frank said to him, Steve, I cannot leave you here. They are the Grizzlies you will probably not make it through the night. We need to get you in the truck. And so now we have a spinal injury in a trucker in a rig. And they dragged and pulled and did every possible thing. Steve used his strength. He said his upper body strength. He was in such agony to pull him up into this rig, put him on the front seat, which he then couldn't tolerate. He couldn't even sit. They rolled him onto the um, bunker thing behind the seat and started driving. Steve in excruciating agony, but him and Frank having a discussion how Steve always wanted to see what the life of a trucker was. I mean, I don't know where his head was. Luckily, the RCMP were going opposite way and they crossed paths, stopped the truck and then waited for the ambulance. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Daniel Kaplan, and she almost loses her husband in a motorcycle accident on a deserted Alaskan highway. She's written a book called I Married a Thrill Seeker. It really opens your minds to getting inside a brain that is wired for risk and reward, pushing things to the limit without ever really thinking about how they're pushing their family to the state of mental anguish. His health quickly unravels. So what happens next? He gets medevaced, airlifted to Vancouver Hospital. Steve had massive bilateral pulmonary emboli, which shot up. And this resulted in him going into full organ failure, multi-organ failure. His heart stopped, his lungs stopped functioning, his liver and kidney and he was given zero chance of survival. And they, when, when I got to see him, because we were called in, they bagging him, you know, when he's, he's intubated into his mouth, and they bagging him to give him oxygen. And this whole group this felt like a, um, like a dance of all these doctors moving around him, these critical care and cardiologists and everybody, and their faces were so somber and looking at us and saying, we don't think he's going to make the night. The team surrounding white faces looking at you saying he doesn't think he's going to make the night. How does Steve survive this? His medical journey is as miraculous as what happened on the roadside is his medical journey. I was now his substitute decision maker and I had to make a quality of life decision. And Steve and I had made a pact before, even when he was going in for his spinal surgery, which was before. We said, he said to me, Dan's, If I have paralysis, if something happens to me, you have to let me go. I can't live. You know who I am. I can't live like that. And you can't, I can't do that to you, Gabby and Josh. You have to let me go. So here I have this, probably the hardest decision in my entire life. They bagging Steve and there's not much we can do. The critical care physician who is just brilliant, Dr. George Isaac at VGH, and we are forever indebted to him. And his team said to me, you know, there is one thing we can try for Steve. He is young and strong and fit, and we can't just let him go. And my whole family are begging me, and I'm saying, no, no, let him go with dignity. This is what he wanted. This is what we've made this pact. They said there is this technology called ECMO. And what that is, it's this machine that lets the heart and uh, lungs rest and pumps in oxygen or carbon dioxide blood externally. So it's even more than ventilation. It's an extra life support system. And you only use that when mortality is such that it's end stage. And usually the outcome is very poor because people going on it don't survive, going on it, survive on it, coming off it. And I did not want Steve to live like that, prolonging life where there wasn't quality. So this was the hardest decision. And I think Dr. George I said to me, you know what? He gave me a bit of an out and he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If we put him on it, because you have to consent to surgery. I didn't consent to surgery. It meant that Steve would die within hours. So he said, if we put him on it, we can watch him. And if in 48 hours he does not improve, we will remove him and let him die with dignity. And I guess the voices, the silent voices of my children in my head saying, mom, 
that's our dad. You didn't give us a chance to say goodbye or even make help you make the decision. It's interesting. Your entire marriage, you always seem to be caught between these two paddles, you know, and it comes down to a life and death decision caused by Steve once again saying, I'm going to go off on the solo trip. So it turns out to be an incredible decision, though, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, probably... It's so immense, I can't even rationalize in my brain how. And I, I, I remember the time I was so clear, but I was so confused. They put him on the machine. He must have started to see some improvement. Was it his strength, his mental fortitude? I mean, promising he'd come back in one piece. I mean, why did he defy the odds as so many others wouldn't have made it? One of the nurses would joke with Steve and say, I know why you live because otherwise your wife would have killed you. <laughs> it's probably that his body was incredibly strong and fit. It was the timing of them putting in this medical technology and the decision-making of these wonderful doctors. And I'm going to just plug it here. Canadian healthcare is just phenomenal. We are so indebted and grateful. The whole journey, Canadian healthcare came through for us. The fact that ECMO was available, which is not available at many hospitals. So what was the luck of the draw that we landed at a hospital that has ECMO? What's his body like today compared to before he left on a motorcycle trip? He was very fit, strong, and before he left and was this invincible man who could do anything. After the accident, he went through, because he was immobile for a long time, he developed terrible fears. So he was physically impaired. He had to learn how to move in a bed. He didn't know. He didn't know how to hold a cup. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sit up. So all those steps and stages, he worked hard through. We worked hard through. I was his clinician. I was an advocate to be reckoned with, which is a real message. You need a patient advocate. And he worked really hard to get himself back to a version of himself. There's no question of doubt. He still has some limitations. But he is riding his bicycle. He is working on his fitness. He, We walk our furry baby, our dogs, miles. He is as strong as he could possibly be with a spinal fusion, with a damaged lung. But he is so um, determined. He, and he rose so high. He had cognitive deficits. He had delusions. He was psychotic. He had nightmares. He had suffered post-traumatic stress disorder for a very long time. So I have to ask you, during all this time when you're the advocate, there must have been some anger that your entire life is being turned upside down, including the sacrifices you have to make to take care of him. How did you get beyond that? I mean, what's your relationship like today? Is it better now because he's the thrill-seeking's behind him? Or is it is there a better balance between the two of you? I'm just curious. There's a lot. You talk about what he went through, but I have to imagine, other than the physical, the physicality of his, you went through some severe stress and anxiety and priorities changing and everything that comes with taking care of someone like that that shouldn't have been there, but was because of his stupidity. About six months after his injury, I was in that automatic pilot mode and he was starting to return to some function and he was saying, Dan, you're not my therapist anymore. You're my wife. Stop being that. And so it was an opportunity. I went to a psychiatrist who dealt in behavioral therapy so that I could vent my anger and I could work through my emotions and I could talk about how 
this impacted on our life and our children and gain some strategy. But I don't think it fully dealt with everything. And he also went through a major period of denial and I defied the odds. I'm going to go out there and live my life again. One would have thought he would have been gracious and he was for a while. But then I think what set in was anger at himself and he misdirected this anger instead of dealing with it, went on to kind of live this independent work life. But I went back to see another psychiatrist who was incredible, also cognitive behavioral. And she explained to me a lot. She helped me understand what sensation-seeking behavior is. She explained to me the neurochemistry of it. She also demonstrated to me how I was living on automatic pilot and that I was just waiting for the next crisis and the next crisis, and that's how I was living my life. So she taught me strategies, how to ride the wave, how to live in the present, and it was hugely beneficial. And because I did better and would come home and tell Steve, it it was informative for him, and he started demonstrating empathy and understanding of this huge impact that his decision-making had made on me and on my children, our children, and on our family. Is he still a thrill seeker? I believe you can't take the thrill out of the seeker. So even though it was suppressed for a very long time, there still is the desire. But because he has empathy to the situation of how it impacted on myself, the children, our families, um, he also has more fear. Steve never had fears, which enabled him to do all the things he did. And he just knows. He just knows in his heart of heart he can't mess with us again. You and Steve go back to Alaska and you meet the truck driver that shouldn't have been there was there. What was that reunion like? Phenomenal. So we we decide four years later to go back to Vancouver and go back to the Yukon to meet Frank. And he makes this decision and he plans the trip as if it was his motorbike trips with precision and exactness. And by chance, we didn't know we would do it, but we had the coordinates of where he had his accident. I had the police occurrence report, which is phenomenal. And we looked it up. It was by chance I'd been given it the week before. So it was in my computer bed. And we said, you know what, should we go and find that spot on the road? We did, which was incredible and triumphant but it looked like every other place on the road but we knew and we created a little stone plaque to Stephen on the road and then we head off to go to see Frank and Sandy. Sandy is Frank's wife who I had been in correspondence with through the accident and all these amazing emails from her and as we drive in my heart is racing and Steve has not a lot of memory because a lot was obliterated when he went into Uh, multi-organ failure and this big beautiful burly man with his big viking moustache walks to the car and my heart's racing and I can see Steve is like unsure how to deal with this he gets out the car they look at each other they first shake hands the shake then goes into a full-on hug embrace and Sandy and I watch tears brimming in these big strong men's eyes And even though they underplayed the emotion, it was so tangible 
how they were bonded forever. I hear you have an extraordinary book. It's available at Indigo and Amazon. I wrote the book. I don't know why I did. I collected all this information because I wanted to share with Stephen, because he didn't know, and the kids, all these terrible early on details, which, of course, why would they even want to know it? So I had all the information. I took a photo journey of the trip of not of the early, of the whole medical journey. I don't know why I did that. And later on, we had Steve's photos of his trip. So through all of this and speaking with the RCMP and the occurrence report, I created the story. And so there is a book and it's called I Married a Thrill Seeker. And it's my memoir as a wife of my risk-taking husband in this long road to recovery. And we also created a website uh, which is www.imarriedathrillseeker.com. And on the website is the full photo journey of his trip to Alaska, our medical journey, our trip back to the Yukon, and there is Frank and Steve embracing, which is just like the most emotional thing, and where we are now. Can you get it at Amazon? Where do you buy it? For Canadians, the book's on amazon.ca, and it's in Indigo. So you can get it at both places. In the U.S., it's Amazon.com, it's Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. What's the most important message I would take away from that book? You know, there are a number. I would say in healthcare, every patient needs a patient advocate because the outcome is significantly different if you have someone help you navigate through your healthcare system. The other thing is I... Actually, through the book, explain how to be a caregiver because I had had the training by working in a hospital and their strategies of what to do to enable someone to keep their dignity. So, Danielle, I always end my podcast with my three lessons in life. And first one is I just it was just almost at the beginning. But you said, you know, with the freedom of Canada and also how you mentioned talk about our health care, weather is relevant. And I think that's a great reminder for everyone that, you know, we get obsessed by the little things, but really look around and what we have. Second one is just this with consequences, especially when they involve risk, there's such anxiety and you might be fearless as the individual taking that risk. But I think it's important to remind all of us that there's other people that you might be putting that anxiety on. But the last thing is, you know, you talk about the importance of being an advocate uh, and taking care. I'll tell you what, Steve might have been very lucky to find, to have that box show up, and he might have been very lucky to find Frank, the truck driver. But I think the luckiest thing that Steve ever was that you agreeing to go out with him because your empathy, your care, your ability to deal with this, cope with this, to understand the fact that you're still with him. I think it's testament to just what love is all about. And I think you're just an incredible human being. And, and it proves that empathy above all is the miracle of humans and humanity. So thank you so much for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Honey, thank you so much for that. Yes. It's certainly very thought-provoking and opens so many questions. And I so appreciate having this opportunity to share my life and story, as I said in the beginning, with you. And it's been a wonderful interview. Joining me now is Amy Deacon, one of Canada's leading thinkers on mental health, a frequent guest on my show, 
and the founder and CEO of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Welcome back, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Danielle Kaplan, she writes a book called A Married, a Thrill Seeker. And as you heard from the show, this guy, from day one, she had her sixth sense saying, he's not my type. It's all about him. He loves adventure. He's cocky. He's not the person I would be attracted to, but she finds herself marrying them. So the first question is, do opposites really attract? Because I can't think of two more opposite people than someone that's willing to risk their life for the for the thrill of speed and all that, and someone who's much more of a cautious, pragmatic individual. Could you imagine two A-type personalities being together forever? It, you know, sometimes you need that yin and yang dynamic in especially an intimate relationship. But what I would argue is that your values your core values, they need to be on the same page. It's almost how you go about life can be different, but what anchors you, you have to have in common in my, from my perspective in order to have a successful, gratifying relationship. As they moved to Canada from South Africa, his desire to push his boundaries, you know, whether it's ultra marathoning, these solo bike trips, but now he's got a family. So each time he embarks on this sort of desire for risk and reward, where the risk could ultimately be his life, what impact does that have on the people he's leaving behind? And what kind of character does it take to really not factor that in as a decision when you just have this need for speed? I think how you go about what you do makes a really big difference. I think that if if it's done in a really selfish manner, where you just go and you are completely inconsiderate of the people that you're responsible for, can leave a really sour taste in people's mouths. However, if you have conversations about it, if there's a dialogue, if there's some sort of safety planning, if there's considering, taking into consideration other people's thoughts or feelings or perspectives, I think that can lend itself to people having a better appreciation for why you're doing what you're doing. Daniel's husband comes as close to death as you can imagine, and it's not a pretty death. I mean, lying on a deserted highway with a broken back, surrounded by hungry grizzly bears, and he fights his way back, a lot of it to do with Danielle by his side. Does that change a person when they've they've come that close? You would like to think 100%, but the truth of it, it's not 100% of the time. I think that how people wake up and the, how they make sense of what they've just been through is going to determine whether they make a shift, right? We see people that have these near-death experiences and they don't take a second for granted. How they spend their time is so much more intentional. And then there are other people that just keep chasing that thrill. And I'll, t- I'll tell you this, Tony, when I see people that just have this desperate need for that thrill, for me, it's often an indication that it's coming from a place that's almost like a void. They're trying to compensate for something. They're trying to validate, trying to affirm something within themselves. And and that's where um, those roots of addiction are, are kind of similar, whether it's substance use or whether it's thrill seeking. Can you get someone to find another way to fill that void? Or is that something that's always going to be there? And therefore, maybe the therapy and help has to go with the people left behind versus the person out in the road. What I tell clients is therapists can only work as hard as their clients. So if a client comes in and they say, Amy, I really want to adjust this behavior. I really want to explore other ways that I can get my dopamine hit and I can feel that thrill that isn't a risk to my friends and my family and myself. Without a doubt, there are ways to work through that. But what sometimes we see is the family members dragging in that partner, dragging in that family member. And when there is that resistance, success in therapy isn't as likely. Amy Deacon, always a pleasure. And I hope you'll come back on Chatter That Matters because each time 
I know my listeners learn, and I certainly listen and learn as well. My absolute pleasure, and I will be back soon. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.